A few weeks ago, we started a series, which we took a couple-week break because I was gone for a couple weeks. And um, so we're going to jump back into this series that we started on the book of Revelation. And we're talking about the uh, chapter 2 and 3, this, the next uh, couple weeks, talking about the seven letters to the seven churches. And uh, so I want to start this this morning. Larry, you can throw that up or if it overhead up if you would. And I'm going to try to use an overhead to kind of help you follow along as well. And um, now this, this, this day is going to be an introduction and moving into, and hopefully we're going to get through the, the church of Ephesus, which was the first church. And I believe that we're going to see uh, some amazing things as we go through this. Now just for a quick review, John, um, you see the Isle of Patmos. Those are the seven churches that Jesus, in his revelation of revelation, gave to John to write seven different letters to seven different churches. And there are, the ch- there are the churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So just as a quick review, um, those are the churches. Now, what we're going to find in that each one of these messages really have a four-part meaning or a four-part application. Clearly, there is a message to the original church. In other words, if John wrote the letter to Ephesus, that church was going to gain something from that letter for that particular church. But secondly, um, there is a message that can be applied historically through all the church ages. And if you look back at the history of the church, you'll see um, from the beginning of the early church all the way to today, different church history segments that each church age has a message applied historically. But number three and number four are the three of the two that I really focus on the most because those are historical. Number three and number four are today and future Um, This message can be applied, these messages of these churches, these letters of these churches can be applied to our church today. Every one of the different messages, letters we're going to go through, we're going to find something that we're going to be able to glean out of that letter that the Lord is trying to tell our church today. And uh, we'll be wise to listen. We'll be wise to have spiritual ears open and eyes open so that we will hear the message and then apply Uh, what he wants us to do in it. And then number four, and this is probably the most important thing because until number four hits, number three doesn't work. (laughs) The message can be applied to individual lives making up the church of Christ. In other words, this message, this letter today is for Mike Way. And it's for you too. And so as you listen to the message that the Lord is giving to Ephesus and apply it to your life, corporately the church will be improved. The church will benefit, but more importantly, you will benefit by, by it. So those are the four different messages, the four different applications of the message. A quick review. John was the Apostle John, not John the Baptist. This is the Apostle John. Uh, he was inspired by Jesus Christ to write this. He was in his mid to late 90s on the Isle of Patmos. And uh, this was given around 95 AD. The church was about 65 years old. John was the last remaining apostle alive. All the other apostles and disciples were dead and gone maybe 20 to 30 years ago. Paul was dead. Timothy was dead. John was the last writer of the Testaments alive. And so his word was important. Uh, the church had experienced much growth in the midst of, the, of this time. There was a lot of persecution of the Christians there. Under the Roman rule, there was a lot of a martyrdom 
Um, also, a lot of false teachers and, teach, and teachings were all already becoming common, even in a relatively young church. The church was only 65 years old, but there was already false teachers. That's why John's voice was so important, because he held some uh, relevance and he held some direction for the church, and that's why they were all, that's why there's such an important message, and because uh, people were already unsure of their future. The message, if it was important then, it's even more critical today. And we'll be very wise if we will understand, study the letters, and apply them in our church and in our personal lives. Because there was a blessing that was pronounced to every person that read and heard and kept what was given in this book. So it's a very important book. It's a very important revelation of Jesus that we are to uh, study it and we're to understand it to the best we can. And we're going to find that Jesus um, was very open and very honest. Jesus wanted the believers to know that he knew exactly where they were. There's no confusion here. Jesus knew exactly the condition of the church. He knew exactly where they were. He saw their good works. He saw their faithfulness. He saw their patience in the face of persecution. He saw all the good that they did. At the same time, he saw all the bad that they did. He saw their compromise and their apostasy. He saw the indifference, and he saw their lukewarmness. And he wanted them to know that in spite of all the persecution from without and also the corruption from within, that he stood, Jesus stood for them as the mighty conqueror and the warrior that was to overcome. And because Jesus overcame then the churches can overcome. So this is a message of hope. It's not a message of condemnation. It's a message of hope that Christ overcame, and so can we when we persevere in the truth of God's word. So that's what Christ was doing with this. His purpose was to empower believers to overcome the enemy and to raise up people in victory. That was, this, this was a good word. It was a, it was a word of encouragement, even when there was some rebuke, and we're going to find the rebuke that's given to the seven churches, but it wasn't focused on the rebuke. You have to have the rebuke with the good. You have to have both together, and Jesus was very good about that. He gave the praise. He gave the acclamation and the, acclade, the, the, the accolades were not where they were um, um, deserved. But he also gave the stern warnings, and he gave the rebuke, and he gave the correction where that was necessary as well. What he's trying to do with this, he's trying to stir us out of our complacency. Because if we were to really unmask the church today, unmask the American church today, what would it look like? Do you think that the church today is ready for the return of Christ? Do you think that we're prepared as the bride of, uh, that Jesus is coming back for, the bridegroom's coming back for? Or, or is the church really kind of wavering in some areas? Yeah. Well, I'll let you answer that question. I'll let you understand. I'll let you answer the question for yourself and for the church. Where are we really at? Are, are we really fired up? Are we really having a fire in our soul that is uncontainable? Or are we comfortable with the campfire, like we talked about in that little song today? Are we comfortable with keeping God contained in our little box? See, his spirit is calling us out of complacency. He, he's revealing and he's reproving and disapproving of sin. He's not playing games with sin. He's calling for repentance. He's calling for us to, to see the need of repentance and then to repent, to make a change and move the other direction. 
And with that, again, he's not doing that to discourage us and to browbeat us and to take, tear us down. Rather, he's doing it to bring us into a stronger commitment and a dedication and a love for him so that he can release a new anointing on us. He wants to do, he wants to release an anointing on his church. Do you know that? Do you know that he wants to bring a a fresh, Holy Spirit-filled, powerful anointing on his church today? He wants that. He doesn't want complacency. He's not a complacent God. And he doesn't want it in our lives. And he wants to bring us an anointing. And with that anointing, then, he comes and he'll meet us and meet our every need. So Jesus, as he walks in our midst today, he knows our individual and he knows our corporate strengths and weaknesses. He knows it. And his message to us today is the same as the message it was to the seven churches in Asia. So this morning, as we begin the study, let's open our ears. Let's open our eyes. And let's hear what the Lord has to say to us, all right? Amen. Let's do that. Let's, uh, let's start by reading the first letter. Okay, Revelation chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I would, I would encourage you to open it up to Revelation chapter 2 because we're going to stay in these seven verses most of the time. Let's read this together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so now we're going to take the next few minutes and we're going to try to understand what he's saying in this, in this verse. Now, in what, what we're going to find, that there's a structure to the letters. In all of the seven letters, we're going to go through this structure. Jesus describes in detail exactly what he wants John to write down and how he wants it to be revealed. And this is the steps. He gives an address to a particular congregation. He gives an introduction of himself, Jesus, to that congregation. He gives a statement regarding the condition of the church, or he gives praise to the condition of the church, whatever that condition is. is. He also gives a rebuke from Jesus regarding the condition of that church. And then he gives a command or a warning from Jesus to the church. Then he gives a consequence if you disobey. And then finally, he gives a promise to those that have overcome. So we're going to dig into that and, uh, and begin that in this particular chapter. Okay, look at, go back to your Bible. The address to a particular congregation, Jesus says, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. What's the angel mean? The angel of the church in Ephesus, the angel is representative of a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Yeah, and it's, it's, or it's an angelic being responsible for the church. So it is to the leadership of the church, but, but it also represents the entire church. So the letter is written to the whole church to the angel, to the pastor, to the leadership, to the whole church. This letter is indicative or, 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 or relational to everybody in the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus means desirable. That's the meaning of Ephesus. Ephesus, the city and the church, had many attributes 
that were considered the place to be. In other words, it was a famous city with a famous church. It was, it was a well-known, popular city, and the church in Ephesus was a popular church. It was a, a real uh, strong church. It was well-known in, in the society of its day. It had famous pastors that had pastored it. Paul had pastored the church in Ephesus for three years. Uh, Paul was the pastor there for a period of time. Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, names that don't mean anything to us, but they were prominent leaders as well, and they pastored the church in Ephesus. Timothy, Paul's spiritual son, pastored the church in Ephesus. If you read First and Second Timothy, you'll, you'll hear that. The Apostle John, the writer of the book of Revelation, pastored the church in Ephesus. In fact, Ephesus was John's hometown. At the time when John was going to be released, he had been on the Isle of Patmos for 18 months, and when he was released from that island at 95, whatever he was, he went back to Ephesus as his home. So Ephesus, the city, and the church was a place to be. The city of Ephesus, however, the city of Ephesus, was also world famous as a religious, cultural, and economic center of the region. And they had some not-so-good things going on there as well. The temple of fertility goddess Diana was in Ephesus. And here she was worshipped with um, immoral sexual acts. And it was an evil place in the sight of God. In fact, this temple, here's a picture of it, a a rendering of it. This temple was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was supported, get this, 127 pillars, each one 60 feet tall. That's six stories tall. That's, That's twice the height of this church. 60 feet tall, 127 pillars made out of stone comprised the temple of Diana, a fertility god. And um, a lot of effort went in to build that temple, all right? Um, The temple of Artemis was also a major treasury and a bank of the ancient world where merchants and kings and, and even cities made deposits that could be kept under the protection of the deity of Artemis. Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. Uh, Many evil things, superstitious and satanic, were practiced there. Books containing formulas for witchcraft and sorcery and other ungodly and forbidden acts were plentiful in the city. So Ephesus was a thriving metropolitan area of good and evil. The letter is written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. The introduction of Jesus. This This is taken from the image in John's vision of Jesus uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 1. And this emphasizes the, the authority of Jesus in the church and his immediate presence in the church. We see him as holding uh, seven stars and seven lampstands, and he's walking in the midst of them. And basically what that means is that he is present and knowledgeable of this church. He understands what's going on here. He isn't ruling from heaven. He is walking among his people. And he sees and he understands the conditions of the day. And he's very relevant to them. And just as he's relevant to you and I today, he doesn't guard us. He doesn't watch us. He doesn't lord over us from heaven. No, the Holy Spirit is among us. He's walking among us. And the seven candles and the seven stars we're going to see are symbolic here of his presence and his authority. Basically, what this is saying is that Jesus knows what he's talking about. He has the authority to direct 
us. He has the authority to speak the words that he's going to speak to us because he's aware of us and, he's, and he understands and he is the only one that has the authority to judge. And he will be the judge as we're going to find out as we go through the book of Revelation. So that's who Jesus is. Number three, the condition of the church or a statement regarding the condition of the church. Go back to your Bible. Look in verses 2 and 3. It says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus knows your deeds. Just like he knew the works and the deeds of the book of, of the church of Ephesus. He knows what's going on. There is no hiding from Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus knows our works. He knows your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're doing. He knows our hard work and our perseverance. Jesus knows what the church is doing right. The church is doing a lot of things right, and Jesus knows it. He's not the God that wants to tell us all the bad things. He will tell us the good things. We talked about it in Sunday school today. Angel brought it up. It's such a good thing that we do. When we see people growing up in the Lord, it's good that we go to them and tell them, you're doing a good job. You are growing up. We're seeing your growth. We're seeing your spiritual growth. And it's good that we give that accolade. It's good that we give that positive reinforcement. So Jesus sees the work. He sees what we're doing. He also sees that, that the church cannot tolerate wicked people, that they have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You see, the Ephesian church pursued doctrinal purity. They did. They were, they were a well groomed church. They were a well-established church. Remember, we just talked about the pastors. They had, they had Paul. They had Timothy. They had John. They had a lot of good pastors that had pastored this church, and it was a well-founded church. Recorded in the book of Acts, actually, Paul's farewell address to the elders of the church of Ephesus. You read this in the Acts, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. It says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So here, Paul was informing the Ephesian church that even though they are well-founded and well-grounded, there are those that are going to rise among you that are going to be savage wolves that are going to distort the truth and they're going to try to take you off guard and they're going to try to destroy what God has built up. So even in a well-founded church, listen, parents, even in a well-founded Christian home, understand that the devil is still going to try to come and get your kids. He's going to try to come and get this church. He's going to try to bring distorted truths. So I would strongly advise us that we also would be vigorously testing the spirits. Those that would claim to be given a godly message, that we would vigorously be digging in and understanding what's the truth of that word. Is it, is it a word that clearly is of God? Or is it a word that tickles the ears? That we would understand God's truth and not be comfortable 
not be complacent with the campfire, but we want the wild blaze of fire. We want the truth of God's word. The greater the evil, the more deceptive its cover and its influence. Think about that. The greater the evil, the more deceptive its cover and its influence becomes. The book, the Church of Ephesians was not at all immune from that. They were facing it. Then Jesus goes on. He says, You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This church continued doing things and have done so without waver and have done it without growing tired. They showed a godly perseverance that we should imitate. Good things. Good things. By all outward appearances, this was a solid church that worked hard. They had great outreach and they protected the integrity of the gospel. From the outward side, this church was doing the right thing. It was good. It was good. And then let's come to the warning or the rebuke from Jesus regarding the condition of the church because Jesus, remember now, this is Jesus' words and this is his warning to the church of Ephesus. Look at verse 4 in your Bible. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Another translation says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. See, Jesus is beginning here with a sobering word that means that despite all that you've done, I still have some things that you need to work on. I still have some, some, some things that I'm not pleasing. Nevertheless means all the good in the Ephesian church did not cancel out the bad that Jesus is about to describe. Let's not be blinded here, folks, to what God wants to reveal in our lives. Let's be teachable by what the Lord wants to reveal in our life, okay? Let's not harp on it. Let's not get negative about it. Let's just be honest about it. Let's just open our eyes to what the Lord has to describe to us. Jesus told them clearly, you have forsaken the love you had at first, or you have left your first love. Notice that he uses the words left your first love and not lost your first love. What's the difference between left and lost? If I lose something, I don't know where to go find it. It was, an, it was probably an oversight or an accident. I lose things by mistake. I put my key, take my keys out and I set them down someplace and I walk off and I lose my keys because I don't remember where I put them. I, I, didn't, le- I didn't leave them there. I lost them I, or they fell out of my pocket. Lost signifies that they don't know where it went and it wasn't intended to be lost. Left, however, means that it was intentionally left behind. Maybe not, maybe not all at once, maybe, but, but over a period of time and, and a period of actions that what they had deliberately left and they moved on to something else. It was a choice. They left their first love. The seriousness in this is that what was left is a deliberate and conscious decision or a conscious choice to leave it behind. And it's often covered up. It's often covered up. You don't want people to know you left it. We didn't, they didn't want to. On the outward, they looked good, but they left their first love. They looked good from the outside. Inwardly, form had no spiritual life. They were in the form of godliness, but denying its power. As we grow closer to the last days, the problems grow more serious for us today. Think about it. Mark, or I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. Very important passage because we are 2,000 years or so closer to the end day. 
All right? Now let's read the scripture with that in mind. But mark this. Paul talking to Timothy. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of of godliness but denying its power. Wow. See, if if that was applicable when Paul wrote that to Timothy, how much more applicable is it today? Now, I'm not saying this is our church, and I'm not accusing you of anything here. I'm just saying that according to God's word, he says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. We're 2,000 years closer to the last days. So therefore, I would God imagine that this is relevant to today, that this is exactly where, maybe where we're at today. They left their first love. There's something about the first love that we have. It's a more passionate, free-giving, and totally abandoned type of love. You know, I was really enjoyed being at Colorado with those young people this week because, last week, because their love was fresh, and it was passionate, and it was new. It was first love. And I would encourage us to consider our hearts and our lives to our first love. See, I'm not trying to go back and say we have to recreate it because we can't recreate love. But what we can do is go back and look at our choices about love. We could go back and recognize that love is intended to be a growing, dynamic thing. Love is not not static. Love grows, and it changes, and 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 it matures. But the passion of love is still there. That first love should still be there. And we we need to gain that first love. We need to go back, and we need to not let it go from us. We often think of love as an emotional-based, charged-up event. And thank goodness that it has that. Thank goodness there is that with it. But more importantly, Jesus is saying it's time to grow up past the feelings and grow into the commitment of our relationship with him. We grow past what I feel, and we move into the relationship of the commitment. And that's what he's saying. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, A church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart. Or when that love grows cold. Lose love, lose all. That's what, and that's, what, that's the warning for us. We need to love, and we need to love more. And we need to know that this love lasts and perseveres. And it's the, it, this is the love that Jesus is coming back for. This is the church that he's coming back for. All right, now the command that Jesus gave to the church in Ephesus. Go back to verse 5 and 6 of chapter 2. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Or if you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in favor. In your favor, you hate the practices of the the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Consider how far you have fallen. The first step to repentance is considering where you were. The first step of restoration is considering where you were. And until you understand that, it's kind of like the prodigal son. The prodigal son is a good example of this. Because it wasn't until he knew, he recognized how far he had fallen, did he recognize his father's love. Luke chapter 15, verse 16, tells us that the prodigal son, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It's not until you recognize how far you've fallen do you recognize your need for repentance. This boy had taken all of his dad's inheritance, had gone to the big city, lived a high life, spent it all, wasted it all, and when the money was gone, his friends were gone. And then he had to go back, and he survived through eating pig food while he was feeding the pigs. And it wasn't until he was feeding the pigs did he come to his senses. He didn't come to his senses living a high life. He had to fall flat on his face. And that's what God is trying to say to us. Folks, listen, if we, we don't have to do that, by the way. That doesn't have to be the way that you recognize that you need to repent. But, it's only, but God's love and his grace is so strong that he will allow you to fall on your face so that, he, so that you do recognize his love. So what we're trying to say is don't let that happen. If you don't have to, don't let that happen. Repent now while you have the chance, while you have the time. And repent means stop doing what you're doing, turn around and go the other way. This is not a command to feel sorry or really sorry at all. It means to change your direction to go a different way, regardless of how you feel about it. You know it's right, then just do it. It's, you know it's right. This is an urgent appeal for an instant change of attitude and conduct before it's too late. The urgency of repentance that Jesus has given to the church is urgent. And then he says, go do the things you did at first, or, or go back to your first love. And this means stop playing the games and covering up or putting a mask on what you've left behind. In other words, Church of Ephesus, Church of America, if you've lost, if you've left your first love, rather than trying to make it feel like you can recover and look like you have it, just recognize where you're at. Recognize that maybe you've left it behind. And here, here's the message that God, the good news is God wants to restore it. He doesn't want to hurt you because of it. He wants to restore it and he wants to bring you back and he wants to make you a follower one more time with a first love that's impassioned and that's real and that's, that's relevant and it's going to make a difference. That's what he's saying here. Stop doing the cover-up, but come back and do the first things. What are some signs, warning signs that signal that a church or an individual has left their first love? You know, if you don't know where you're at, maybe... Maybe you don't know, have I left my first love? Where am I at? Well, here's some signs that we can all look at. Number one, Christ is no longer the central focus or the center point of your life. Number two, you neglect your relationship with the Lord and spend less time in prayer, worship, and the word. You allow family, friends, job, and your own desires to come between you and your relationship with God. Number four, there's a loss of intimacy in your relationship with God. This morning as we were worshiping, did you see a sense of loss of relationship? Did you have an intimate uh, 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 feeling? Did you have an intimate relationship with the Lord in our worship? If you've lost some of that, then maybe you've left your first love. You're caught in a cycle of dead works. You're more tolerant of sin. Wow, this is a big one, folks. Because we have this age around us that says we live in an era of grace. Therefore, anything goes. We're a real compromising world because we're more tolerant of sin because we've lost the passion and the urgency of our first love that says, I don't want to do anything that pleases my lover. 
I don't want to do anything that would make my lover or make God displeased with me. Therefore, I will not tolerate sin. But as I move, as I move away from that first love, then my tolerance of sin increases. My compromise increases because I don't have the passion of my first love. Finally, you will no longer have a burning passion for the lost because maybe you don't have the first love. Therefore, you can watch people go down the street and you can see them burning going to hell and maybe you don't care. That's a condition. That's an indicator that we've lost our first love. We can allow ourselves to get so busy doing life that we forget about being in Christ. Not that we're sinning, but that by little by little that we've left the first love without even knowing it, possibly. Now, Jesus is saying, I want you back. He's not here, he's not here to give you a, a, a rebuke without, a, without, a, without an opportunity. He goes on, but you have this in favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I don't want to get into a long discussion of the Nicolaitans, but here, this is what it was. Basically, there was a man named Nicholas that was in the early church. And Nicholas knew the gospel. Nicholas was a fired, fired up believer for Jesus. He was trained and he was set apart by the apostles to serve the church. He was a, um, a leader in the church. But something happened to Nicholas where he strayed from the truth of the gospel and he became a false teacher. Something happened in Nicholas where he lost his first love. He left behind his first love. And all those seven characteristics are those right here, those, those, those warning signs of losing their first love impacted Nicholas. And it wasn't long and he became more complacent and he became more uh, adaptable to the society around him and he actually began a false teaching which, according to the scripture here, Jesus hated it. Jesus hates anything that distorts his truth. If you take God's word and you twist it just a little bit, understand what's happening there. Jesus doesn't just dislike it. He's not just a little bit unhappy with it. He hates it. Because you're taking his truth and you're twisting it for your benefit and to destroy people. You're twisting it. I'm twisting it because it's an easier beliefism for me. And I should say, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. Neither should you do that. Because that's the, that's the practices of the Nicolaitans that Jesus hated. So very simply put, the false teaching that's around us, those, those pe- teachers or preachers or, or leaders that will just give an easy word, that's easy believism, this is, not, this is not kind words from the Lord. The Lord says, I hate it. I hate it. We should love the people, but we should hate the detestable and the wicked practices that the worldly compromises would bring. Finally, the consequence of disobedience. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand. What this is saying is that Jesus has given the, the Ephesian church a stern warning. Unless they repent, he will remove his presence from them. How many churches today are country clubs? How many churches have moved away with it from their first love? And you, don't, you walk into a church building. Have any of you traveled around and been in other churches? Can you... Can you sense the difference between a church that has the first love and a church that doesn't? Can you walk into some churches that just are a form of no godliness? They're out there, folks. They're out there. I pray we never become one. I pray we never become one of those churches. See, there's a precedence that's set that God will do this. 1 Samuel chapter 4, 21 and 22. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. 
because of the capture of the ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and her husband, she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. There is precedence in God's word that if we don't chase and follow the first love, that he will remove his lampstand from our church. This is not just a simple warning. This is the truth. And so the only way that we prevent that from happening is that we follow Jesus as as hard as we can, as close as we can, with as much diligence as we can, that we follow him and we look at God's word and and we listen to it and we will take it literally and we'll believe it. And then he gives us a promise, a promise, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the, which is in the paradise of God. Wow, that's us, folks. That's us. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This qualifies everyone. If you have ears and if you're willing to listen to the voice of the God, uh, the, the voice of the Lord, if you're willing to take this letter and make it applicable to your life, if you're willing to do what the Spirit says, then you will be one of the victorious. This church will be one of the victorious. And that we, and to who that overcomes, Jesus makes the promises and he declares to people that we are in relationship to himself and that he will give us the tree of life and we will eat from that. I will give them the right to eat from the tree of life. It's an amazing promise. It's an amazing promise. So what is so as we conclude this morning, Jack, you can come and help us. What is the purpose of, of the message today? What is the purpose of this letter of, of to the Ephesians today? Well, it's to acknowledge, encourage, and rebuke as necessary. And it's also to give us an instruction and to give us hope for the future. This message should give us hope. This message should give us an assurance that, yes, we are on fire for Jesus, and you know what? If I'm not a little bit right now, I can be. I can come back. I can gain that first love again. Jesus' point is, was and still is, to urgently call the people to repent and to live lives pleasing to him so that we can share with him eternity forever and ever. Here's one thing Jesus is. He's very consistent with his message. Jesus never confuses people with his message. It's always the same call. I want you back. I want you back. Would you come? Would you be, would you be my, my child again? That's, that's what his message is for us this morning. And here's the, here's the good news. It doesn't make it harder. This is, not, this is not requiring us to do more, but it's actually requiring us to love more. And when we love, the burden gets lighter. Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is not a message that brings condemnation. This is not a message to hurt. This is a message to, to show you how much Jesus loves us and how much he wants us to, to love him back, that we would reflect his love. So this morning, what is our response? What is your response to a message like this? Do you want the first love? Continue on with the good works. Continue on with what you're doing. But don't let that be enough. Rather, come back to the first love and take the easy yoke of Jesus upon us and and learn to enjoy his presence. Amen, let's pray. Father, we just come before you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we hear the message that you've given to the church of Ephesus 
And we do believe, Lord, that is for us today. We do believe that this is uh, relevance in our church. We do believe it has relevance in my life. And God, and I pray that I would take the message here and I would digest it. And I would think about it. And I would ponder it. And I would learn to apply it in my life so that I am not displeasing to you, that I am not at risk of you removing your lampstand from my life or from this church. Lord, I repent. And I would have that everyone here this morning as well that would feel this urgency to repent as well would repent in their hearts this morning of anything that would cause a a falling away or a cooling off of our first love. Help us, Lord, not to put the busyness of life before you. I know we're busy. I know we have things to do. But God, would you just call us back? Would you allow us to rest in your presence without having the urgency of moving on to the next thing so quickly that we would understand and embrace who you are? Lord, we thank you now. And we, uh, we just are anxious to move in to you closer, to get to know you more. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jackie, would you lead us in this song? And stand if you will or like to. And let's just praise the Lord as we end the service today and just press in here a little bit. Tell them we love them. Father, we just give you thanks for this day now. Lord, as we go to our homes, I pray, Lord, that the message of this letter would go into our hearts and lives today. God, I pray you would encourage us, the fact that you are our conqueror, and you are our deliverer, and you are standing in the gap for us, and you are making intercession for us today, Jesus, and we will be victorious as we persevere and as we press into your love and your mercy and your grace. We love you, Jesus, and so just go with us this week. And God, to bring us back, Lord, that we can come into your presence one more time or take us home, Father, whatever it is, Jesus. We just want you in our hearts and our lives and nothing less. Go with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have a great day today. Be blessed in the Lord.